If I were to ask you, this way. If I were to ask you, can you tell me who your real friends are? Could you actually do it? I mean, could you actually tell me who your real friends are? Uh, maybe some people are only pretending to be your friends. Maybe that's what you got in front of you. Uh, I don't know who Michael Jones is, but or Matthew Jones rather is, but uh, he wrote an article in something called Inc.com. And, and he said, here are the five ways to reveal who your real friends are. You listen to this and you'll find out who, maybe who your real friends are. But I don't know what his qualifications are, but I thought what he said made a whole lot of sense to me. He said that real friends help you celebrate your accomplishments. See, they, other, other people that are not your real friends, they'll be jealous of what you receive and they will be jealous of your accomplishments. They will reluctantly, in fact, they will reluctantly acknowledge your, uh, your accomplishments. They'll say, well, you are good at that. That's the sort of thing that they'll say. And if you feel successful for some of these people, or if you are successful with some of these people, they will feel like failures. Real friends listen and support you when you feel pain and hardship. They will stick with you when things go badly. They will support you when you are down. Uh, Others that are not your friends may look at this as just a great opportunity to kick you when you get down. They'll know when you're down and they'll kick you. Uh, Real friends will ask you meaningful, thought-provoking questions that most people don't. You see, real friends will actually help you grow. They will help you contemplate what's going on in your life and where you would like to go. And they will, in fact, is, is that uh, they, they really care. They, but others don't care if you grow as long as you give them what they want when they finally get to the end. Real friends listen deeply rather than waiting to talk about themselves. In fact, is sometimes the other people don't really want to talk about themselves. They just want to be able to tell you how they're right and you're wrong. And so, the, but real friends will, will listen. They, uh, and, and others control the conversation. There's two ways to control the conversation, by the way. You know how they are? You can talk incessantly or you can be silent. You'd realize you've controlled the conversation either way you go. And when people say, well, I don't control the conversation and it's silent, they're actually controlling the conversation. Real friends challenge you to grow. And real friends will actually grow with you. See, others that are not your friends, will, they'll push you to perform, but not grow. Perform is all they really care about. Growth is changing who you are over time. Performance is merely the bottom line. That's all it is. You know, but got to tell you the truth can sound the same because real friends will call you out too. You have to understand real friends will call you out. I says, but uh, when you're not acting like you should, but what happens with the not so real friends, they're really looking for you to perform in a different way. Some people I've got to admit, they do not know how to be friends. And in fact is that is true for a lot of men. As I have studied some of the things about men, men have a hard time making friends. And many people, because they don't know how to make friends, they actually just use people is what they do. And what you will become to them is like a pair of shoes. They'll wear you till you wear out and then they'll throw you out. This is the way that that that, that works. But if you are a Christian... And you want to be what God has called you to be. Understand this. 
You must surround yourself with true friends. You must have friends. You will not make it successfully in the Christian life without friends. And Paul himself did not make this journey alone either. You can see one of the most difficult times in Paul's life when you look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. And he says it to us several times in chapter 4. Verse 9, he says, do your best to come to me soon. Do you see the words that are there? I need you to be here. In 2 Timothy chapter, well, verse 11, just a couple of verses down. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for the ministry. He's saying, I, I need some other people. Luke's not chopped liver. I'm not trying to say that. But, but he's not what, all that he needs. In verse 16, he says, At first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it so that I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Paul knows he needs people. Now here's the story, folks. You need people and people need you. It's not a one-way street. It's not a one-way street. So when... I talk about discipleship. I'll bet that there's some people out there saying, I'm tired of hearing about this thing called discipleship. I want you to hear this, folks. That's what the Bible says we must do. It doesn't say that we need to have parties. It doesn't say that we have to have, uh, we we have to have, it doesn't even say that we have to have um, things that we think are essential. It says that we must make disciples. And I think that a lot of people who think that we're talking about this thing called discipleship, like we're going to get over it, like we're going to get over the command of Jesus Christ to go out and make disciples, or like when I was, I was, I went to this uh, church, this mega, uh, mega church pastor, he was running about 4,000 people in his church at this time. And he had a man come up to him and he said, he said, pastor, I know a way we can double the congregation, the number of people we got here. And, and he said, I'm, I'm all ears. Tell me how we can do that. He said, it's all, this, this thing that you keep preaching about Jesus. He said, if you would open the door to other ways, we could double the number. And he looked at the guy and he said, you know what? You don't get it, do you? You don't get it. And if you are tired of hearing about discipleship, I'm not criticizing you. I'm just telling you, you don't get it yet. You don't get it because that is what the Bible tells us to do. So when I read these people that we've got here in the scriptures that Paul has with him and, and, and he's there, whether he's writing to the, he's in Corinth and he's writing to the, to the people in Rome. This is his discipleship group. You understand? These are his friends that are his discipleship group. And he is continuing to make disciples while he is even writing this letter while he is in Corinth. So it says in Romans chapter 16, verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Let's just go through and see who these people are. First off, Timothy is Paul's son in the faith. 
He is the one that Paul has taken under his arm and said, you know what? I am going to lead you along so that you can be an effective disciple maker. He says, he addresses Timothy in in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2. He addresses him and saying, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and, and, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Paul is not calling Timothy a child. But he is stating his relationship to Timothy in the faith. Timothy is Paul's disciple. Discipleship is a process that grows the disciple to act righteously when the disciple maker isn't around. It is not a list of do's and don'ts. And it's not merely that the disciple gets some head knowledge. And that is what has so happened in Baptist churches until we've not gotten anything out of that. You've got notebooks setting on your shelves and books setting on your shelf. And you've got study after study that you've done. And it's making no difference. It's making no difference in the lives of other people. See, disciples are people that actually do what the Lord has commanded them to do. And so Paul has taken Timothy. He has a vested interest in, Te- in Timothy. And you, you put a vested interest in those people that are your friends. And understand, when you make a disciple, you make a friend or you didn't do it right. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? You make a disciple, you make a friend. And so, and they, those are the people that will support you and you will support them. Timothy has complied with Paul's discipleship. You realize that Timothy has become a voice for the Jews for Christ. Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. If both parents had been Greek, this wouldn't make any difference at all. But his lack of having a circumcision would matter to the Jews if he was going to be that apostle to the Jews or that one that is going to try to reach the Jews. So to appeal to the Jews, the sign of the covenant needed to be upon Timothy so that he could have this ministry to the Jews. And what did Paul tell him to do? You need to be circumcised. That's a big deal for a grown man. And that was what has happened here. He made that decision himself. And he did so because that was the most effective way of reaching someone that was a Jew. He did it that way. It's amazing to me, and I'm going to just be up front with you, the number of people that once they get saved, that they will not be baptized. Do you realize that is the new sign of the covenant? It is something that is actually in that great commission that says that we should baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is absolutely that is there. It is, it is something that is so important That there is not one, and I want to give you this, there is not one recorded instance in the New Testament of someone who had the opportunity of being baptized, refusing baptism after they had gotten saved. There is not one case of it. That's how important it was. I had a lady in one of my churches, she had... uh, She was in her 80s, and and she was an alcoholic. I'm just going to tell you what she was. She drank like a fish, and she got saved. Now, I want to tell you, she didn't just... I I say, you know, some people get saved, and they go along and live their lives just like they did before. She didn't do that. 
<laughs> I want you to know this woman got all the way saved. And I know you can't get all the way saved. You can't, you're either saved or you're not. I got that. I understand that. But she got completely saved. I mean, she was, she was a, a crusader for Christ. She was in a wheelchair, though, by the time she came to know the Lord. And so, you know what I said? You know, she stopped her, you know, she stopped doing the things that she shouldn't be doing. She's sharing Christ. I mean, she's very old. And in this church, the baptism steps, you could not believe it. You had to go down in the basement. You had to go up these incredibly steep stairs. Then you came back up and you dropped back down into the, into the uh, uh, sanctuary where you would be like up here. I mean, you went, you went down into a basement, came up all the way. So you really couldn't figure out how to get in there unless you went down in the basement first. That was the only way to figure out how to get into the baptistry. So it's incredibly steep. Here she is in a wheelchair. I told her, I said, you know what? Salvation does not require baptism. You will be okay. And she looked at me and she said, you will baptize me. And you know how somebody can tell you something and you know you're going to do it? I knew that what she was saying, yes, ma'am, I will baptize you. I had to get three deacons to carry her in a wheelchair up those incredibly steep stairs to get her down into that water. It's very easy to baptize someone when they're sitting in a wheelchair, though. It just rock them back and rock them up. You know, that was the kind of thing she was baptized. That lady lived her life in obedience to what the Lord Jesus Christ had told her to do. And those deacons, you know, because I thought, what a, what a, what a hard, hard, you know, hard thing to do. Because it was really hard climbing up those stairs with her in, in that wheelchair and everything else. They told me this was one of the greatest honors that they had ever had, carrying her up there and having her baptized. When I did her funeral a few years later, I knew this woman's faith. And you know what? She wasn't going to let something that was difficult defeat her. And I think this happened with Timothy. He was not going to let something difficult defeat him. So it would be Timothy that Paul would urge to come with him. When there was only Luke. Now, again, I'm not going to say Luke was chopped liver. I'm not trying to say that. But he wanted Timothy there, someone that was closest to his side when the difficulties were coming around. See, everybody wants to be somebody. But you see, the important point is, who are you going to be somebody to? Did you know that you can go over to England? At least I'm, you might can do this in the United States. I don't know. There's a company called rentacrowduk.com. Rentacrowduk. And you can pretend to be famous. What they'll do is, is that I, I, I just got this online. They will give you four paparazzi. You know, you walk down the street and there's four uh, photographers taking pictures of you as you're walking along. They'll give you four mega fans. You know, they want your, your autograph all the way down there. And believe me, once you get a couple of people doing it, there'll be more people. They don't know who you are, but they'll want your autograph too. You know, the kind of thing. And they'll, they'll even set up a scenario. You can be a rock star. You can be a, you can be an author. You can be a, an actor or you can do it, whatever you want to be. And you know, you pretend and they go along and you get two bodyguards too. Then you walk along for two hours, two hours. You can do that. All for the low sum of 997 pounds or $1,300 U.S. Now think about that. 
you want to be somebody and you'll pay $1,300 for two hours to look like you're somebody and feel what it's like to be somebody when you could be somebody to somebody. That's the important part, being somebody to somebody. The next three people we know very little about. Let me read their, their names here. It's Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. We know very little about him. We know that Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater are said to be kinsmen. It is very doubtful that they are relatives. All three names are, are Greek, Greek names that are there. Uh, Paul's use of the word kinsman is generally used in the, for fellow countrymen. So they may have been from Tarsus. They may have been, you know, guys in the neighborhood. I don't know what you want to call them there. And, and there, there was some kind of connection that was there between Paul and where he was from. And I want you to know there is always some kind of connection that we have when we find somebody that is where we are from. You see, and, and it might be the accent that you have. It may be the food that you eat. It may be that the traditions that are familiar to you or maybe that's people that you know. You know, but somehow... Paul has gotten in touch with these people and he has somehow, I I don't know if he shared the faith with them or they came already uh, prepared, but there was a connection that went on between Paul and these people. They were kinsmen. I can tell you that as I drive down the road and I see a Texas plate on on a car, I always look, even though there's almost no chance I know that person. You know what I'm saying? There's almost absolutely no chance that I know them. And I can tell you also that the moment that I get off the plane, either in Austin or Houston or at DFW, my Texas accent comes back with a vengeance. You may think that I have one now. You should see me in Texas. In fact, as I was in the Austin airport and I heard this guy talking with this incredible, I mean, not, not terrible uh, Texas accent, but certainly more Texas accent than I had, was familiar with. And I heard that guy talking and then I realized it was me. I was the one who was saying those words. And that there is a familiarity in finding people from your home. I, and like I said, I don't know how they were attached to each other. I don't know if Paul shared the gospel with them and they came to know the Lord that way. I don't know if they already came that way. But I do know that having people from home around us gives us a security. You understand what I'm saying to you? It says, we know that that they were with Paul at the time of the writing of this letter to the Romans. And the distance from Tarsus to Corinth was a good long way. So they either have stuck with Paul in the journey or somehow connected with him while they are in Corinth. But these people were making up Paul's discipleship group. And it would have been very natural to say to somebody who knew the Lord, why don't you come and join me? I've got some things that I'd like to share with you about the Lord and how you can be obedient to the Lord's commands. See, a discipleship group forms a bond that years and distance do not break. Hear this from me. I know this for sure. I have been uh, in places where I've had discipleship groups. And when I come into town, if they find out that I'm in town, they want to get 
that group that they were in, not all the groups at once, but that group that they were in, they want us to all get back together and have a meal together. There's a bond that goes beyond the years that I've been away and, and, and simply we, we just catch up almost overnight or over, over a few moments, in fact, because quite frankly, our, our base is what we know in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talk about what has been going on. And what I realized is, is that when I go and I talk with them, the most beautiful thing is they're carrying on without me. They're carrying the faith without me. I don't have to be there. So Paul is making disciples who will carry on without him. The next person here is Emanuensis. Emanuensis, this Emanuensis, sends his greeting. It says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, I want you to hear this. I personally do not like that, the way they translated that. I translated it myself. The, the word order is completely out of order in what they've got there. Let me give you my translation because this is the way it reads for me. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter in the Lord, greet you. What I'm trying to say here is, is that Tertius makes a double point by he puts in the fact, he puts that, that uh, personal pronoun there, that first person personal pronoun in there, I. He says, I, Tertius. He doubles down on it so that there's no mistake. I am the one who actually wrote down this letter. Now, normally, uh, that would mean to say that, uh, it mean that it rests, uh, you, you can't get the sentence to construct the way they did it up there. I'm just going to tell you what they did. They didn't get it that way. It is, should be, he wrote the letter in the Lord. That's what it really says. I wrote the letter in the Lord. And what he's saying here is, the emphasis is, is either on the how or the why he wrote the letter. There is no doubt that Paul dictated the letter. There's nothing, no doubtful doubt about that. But Tertius is the one who writes it down. And, and Amunensis may have done some interpretation in the process to make the letter either more readable or more applicable. Many people don't think that Peter, for example, wrote First and Second Peter. And you know why? Because the Greek is so excellent. And they think, how could a fisherman have written such a letter with such excellent language in it. It should have been rough, and it wasn't. And so it's probably, I think, Amanuensis has taken that, and as Peter dictated it, the Amanuensis put it in the proper Greek as he went along with, as it, with his writing. So Tertius appears to recognize what he is writing. He realizes that what he is doing is a work of the Lord, and he's doing it in the Lord. He understands that. Now, I understand that because I know that I can preach a message, and this is what I've realized. I've gone to hear a lot of preachers preach, and a lot of preachers are really good preachers. And they, they don't get many results. A lot of them don't get much results, but they, they're really—and in fact is, I can't tell a whole lot of difference between one preacher and the other. A lot of preachers, you know, when you listen to them, and yet some preachers are a whole lot more effective than other preachers are. And I attribute that to preaching in the Lord, not simply preaching.
preaching because you know what the scripture says, not simply preaching because you, you've, had, uh, you've had the training in order to prepare your sermons, but because you do it in the Lord. And when it is done in the Lord, it is much, much more effective. It's not fundamentally different. A sermon's not fundamentally different, but it makes its effectiveness uh, and the message immeasurably more powerful. And if I was choosing an amnesis to write a letter of such weight, I would want someone like Tertius. The next is the completion of the people that are with Paul. It says, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you, Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. These are the folks that are left here. Gaius was Paul's host, and he was also the host of the church, what it says there. He must have been wealthy, or else he could not have hosted the church in his home. It had to be big enough for them to have a group of people that were there, a church in Corinth. Erastus, whose name means beloved, by the way, which might be a good name for another Sunday school class, Erastus, Erastus, beloved, is the city treasurer. Now, I know that some of your translations may not say that. I believe that's the best translation of that. It is the city treasurer. And this was an important function, and it would have, and it would have prevented him from being Paul's traveling companion, but he could be discipled there in Corinth. This is the situation. Quartus, who is simply said to be a brother, that's all we've got on that. So Paul had regard for these last three. He doesn't mention anybody else in the Corinthian church. So you get the idea that these must be the people that are in his discipleship group. They must have been faithful in the Lord and also faithful in doing the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all need people like this. This is the command of the Great Commission. And when we find these people, you know what we will call them? What did Jesus call his disciples? He called them friends, didn't he? Jesus called his disciples friends. That's what we have. John fifteen fifteen. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his, fast, his, what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. I believe this is the missing element in our discipleship process always. As long as we have classes and we are not having discipleship until we have friends in that process. And we have tried to make disciples without making them friends. They will contribute financially to the church. But we fail to disclose them ourselves to them. We, they will co- contribute in service, but we fail to disclose ourselves to them. And so what we do is we pat them on the back and we say, I hope you make it. That is not making disciples. Too many times a pastor stands alone without these people. And then when you have that happen, you have a lack of trust. And that comes from isolation. For you must be a friend to have a friend. That is truthfully what it must be. So who are your friends? Do they tell you anything about yourself? Have you been isolating yourself, hoping that someone will come to you? Uh, you know, we had a guy uh, who became a deacon, and, and uh, we ordained him as a deacon. He came to one deacon's meeting. 
And he said, I'm not going back because nobody talked to me. Do you realize you got to be a friend to have a friend? Do you realize that it's not simply the responsibility of the other people to talk to you? You've got to go and you've got to talk to those people and you've got to make that connection that is there. And so discipleship is gathering a group who will be taught to obey all that Jesus commanded and become dear friends as they do. That's what happens. And doesn't that fit with what Jesus said as a disciple? He said, John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know what? You are my what? Disciples. If you love one another. Now, think about that. I would like to right now call forward each of you that has been in a discipleship group so far. I want you to stand up here because I want to have a prayer over you. If you have been in a follow me class and you've been discipled through that, if you've been in a multiply class, if you have been in a uh, insanity of obedience and hearing God, would you please come forward right now? I want to see who these people are that have been discipled so far. Come forward. I want you to line up right here. You've been in one of these classes. I want to pray over you. I want to give you a scripture as far as that goes as well. So you have been in these classes, or one of these classes at least. Okay, come on down. Because you need to be in, have been in a disciple. Or even in the hearing God, if you've been in hearing God so far. We had not finished that one yet, but we're on our way. Here's what the scripture says. And I'm going to tell you guys right here. I'm not trying to put another onus on you, but it is. Here's the story. What Paul told Timothy is this. And what you've heard from me and the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men, and that would be men and women, who will be able to teach others also. You have more than a responsibility of being, having been in a discipleship group. You have a responsibility to carry it on. And in carrying it on, some of you will lead your own discipleship groups. And some of you will simply serve in a way that people will watch you and become your disciples as you serve. But all the time it will be not simply so they'll have another notebook stuck up on their shelf. It will be because now they will obey the commands of Jesus Christ. So let me pray for you now. Father, I thank you for these people who have become disciples. I pray, Father, that there will be amazing things that will happen. I pray for them to, some of them having their own groups in which they'll have dear friends in those groups. And some of them, they will go and they will serve in some place and they'll have dear friends in those groups. And I pray, Father, that there will be an explosion of disciples because that is the command to the church. I pray, Father, that we fulfill this command. And I pray, Father, from this seed of people that are here, that this church will be known as a disciple-making church. And so that there will be a witness that will go on Many, many, many decades 
after these people are no longer walking on this earth. I pray, Father, that the, not only the responsibility, but the joy of serving you fills their hearts. And I pray for your glory to be seen all over. Because as they spread out and maybe even leave this place, they share the process of discipleship and the commands of Jesus as they go. And, save, and people are saved and more glory erupts from that. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for coming forward. I will say this for the rest of you. Has God called you to anything? Has he called you to become a Christian? If you're not a Christian, he called you. I guarantee you. Has he called you to become a part of this church? I want to understand. If you don't want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, this is not your church. I'm not trying to say we don't want you. I'd love to have you. But the fact is, I think you're going to be frustrated. Because I can tell you for the rest of my ministry, this is what I will be preaching. That people become disciples of Jesus Christ because that's the command of the Lord. So I want to ask you, is there, is there something that you need to do today? Do you need to respond to the call of the Lord and say, I want to become a believer today? Do you want to respond and say, I need a church home? If you do so, you'll come down during the invitation. Let's all stand. This is the invitation. Please respond.